Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who is figuring out how 5G is going to transform drone applications and in my spare time, I want to learn more about the surprising trends on IoT in Asia. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia. And today, I have Charles Anderson, founder of Charles Reed Anderson and Associates. Welcome Charles and it's great to have you back again. Hello Bernard, it's great to be back. Yes, I think we have recently been bumming each other in conferences. Of course, I always want to ask you since our last conversation, what have you been up to? A lot of the same stuff, but I've been speaking at a lot of events. I just recently did the opening keynote at IoT World Asia, but a lot of building up to that was quite fun because I did a lot of, I wanted all new content. So I did a whole new set of research around the industry to try to figure out what's working and most importantly, what isn't working. So what do we need to do to fix that? You have also traveled to the US and also presented and your thoughts on Internet of Things across Asia Pacific and globally, right? Recently? Yeah, that was fun. So I did one back then to May at Santa Clara. So it's IoT World. It's the world's largest IoT events. And I did the opening uh, keynote there. So it was great because I got a 40-minute slot, which is actually quite long for a keynote. And the idea was that I wanted to talk about what's going on in Asia. And I have this big belief that everyone keeps talking about how Asia is catching up in relation to IoT. And in my view, age is already ahead. And what I tried to do was give my rationale for what I see going across the Asian markets and why I think that the U.S. should be tracking it a lot more and actually starting to copy it a lot because a lot of the successful use cases are starting to come out of this region. So you gave a keynote in the recent IoT World Asia conference in Singapore and the title of that talk is What's Hot, What's Not and What's Next? And I think there are a couple of surprises for the IoT trends in 2018. I think we have often discussed IoT in this podcast and you have given given a lot of insights about the industry and where it is going. And we also established what we call a working definition of IoT. And I know the definition has changed a lot. Has the definition of IoT changed in your opinion for the past few years? And if it has changed, can you give a definition of what IoT is now and what it covers? I think some people's definitions are changing, but from my perspective, it really hasn't changed. Any IoT solution is basically runs the same way. Whether you're talking about a smartwatch, um, you're connecting up a cow, or you're doing predictive analytics on machinery. You have a thing that's going to be transmitting data through some type of a network to a platform. That platform is going to analyze that data, maybe store it, push it up to some applications. And that whole lifecycle needs to be secured, integrated, and supported. I think what's actually happened in the last few years is people are understanding what's really changing. So IoT isn't anything new. All of those components already existed. All we're really adding is the intelligent systems, those analytics platform that allow two of the things to talk together independently. But in my perspective, what it is at its core hasn't changed, but maybe the market's starting to realize that IoT isn't a revolutionary concept. It's actually just a natural evolution of the IT and ICT technology ecosystem. So since 2015, we hear about the explosion of IoT. Now we're at 2018. What are the sentiments of the various groups of people towards the technology? For example, the VCs, the vendors, and even the users. Yeah, so this goes back to my the keynote that I just did recently. And I'll be honest with you, this was the hardest keynote I've had to compile because I've been doing keynotes on IoT for maybe six years now. And it's hard to come up with new concepts. And what I normally do is I reach out to a number of my contacts in Europe, the US, and Asia, and ask them what they see um, in the market and what's really changing year on year. 
And what shocked me this year was that to a T, every single person said, nothing's really changing. And then I started looking back, well, what's changed since we first really started talking about IoT? So what I looked at was an appraisal period of 2014 and 18. And I went back to those same people and said, if IoT was an employee and you were giving an employee, that employee an appraisal, how would you rate them? And that was that period from 2014 to 2018. And there was, I probably got about eight responses back, but I'll share a couple with them with you because they're actually quite insightful. One was from a partner at one of the local VC firms here that focuses um, on IoT solutions. And his view of the performance appraisal is IoT would not have a rating. IoT would have been fired for consistent underperformance over the course of the last 20 quarters. So that's kind of a shocking view, but his view is that it's just not living up to expectations at all. And then the one that really sort of changed the way that I'm looking at this came from the heads of a global head for one of the largest ICT vendors. And he said, my first response would be to fire IoT. But then HR would convince me that the objectives set were unrealistic. Hence, IoT is on probation. And I thought that was really, that's where I got my concept for this presentation. It's like, if you're thinking about it, we set these expectations a few years ago that were really unrealistic. We built up a lot of hype. And I think now we're just coming to that point where we're getting beyond the hype and we're starting to understand what the real opportunity is, what the challenges are, and how we can address them. How about you as a user then? I mean, you and I use wearables for our daily lives. What do you think your assessment of IoT would be then? On the wearable side? I still think it's early days and it's not doing what I want yet. If you go back and see my presentations, even when they were first coming out with Samsung Gear and Apple Watch, I was never a fan of these one-size-fits-all um, watches. I want to see watches and wearables become more specific to targeted user groups. And what I mean by that is I, I like what people like Omate do, where they make an elderly care management watch. The whole thing is customized to match the needs and requirements of a specific user group. I think in healthcare, that's where it's really going to explode. We're already starting to see a lot of wearables, the diabetes sensors, we start seeing them more for managing chronic conditions and also for outpatient management. So, but we're still, those are still in the early days. Um, there's a lot of challenges around uh, the accuracy, the data and ensuring the security of it. But that's where I think it's really going to take off. But for the rest of them, yeah, we always get excited about the new Apple Watch or the new Samsung gear. What I want is a larger ecosystem of many more different device types that go after specific groups and targeted groups. Of course, specifically, Apple Watch is now moving towards also becoming a device in the healthcare space. But I think the industry itself have made many predictions on IoT in the past few years from connections to market opportunities. What are the initial predictions and what is the market reality now? Because I've seen you made some comparison to different studies and different estimates and it turned out to be a little bit off the charts now. Yeah, this is the one that by the time I got off stage, my phone was already buzzing because people were amazed that I showed the data. It's all publicly information, public available information. It's just a matter of how you combined it. What I've been tracking for a number of years is whenever analyst firm or an, a vendor comes out with a forecast, whether it relates to the number of IoT connections or the market opportunity, I track it and I try to figure out what trends I see because it's, the numbers are really all over the place. So for instance, back in 2014, that's when we first had the really the big wave of the hype coming through. And you had some of the analyst firms. So Gartner said at that time there was going to be 25 billion IoT connections in the world by the year 2020. At the same time, IDC said there was going to be 30 billion. Now that's pretty close. But then you look at Ericsson and Cisco in 2014, they were saying it was going to be 50 billion. And then the big forecast came from Morgan Stanley. And I'll never forget seeing this press release when it came out because I think my jaw hit the ground. 
they said it was going to hit 75 billion by 2020. So you had this wide range going off there about how many connections. And it's difficult because everyone was just sort of guessing. And let's face it, big numbers grab attention in the market and get you the headlines. But what's happened in 2018 is all of those have basically now sort of scaled back. So Gartner now says it's at 20 billion. So that means that they've basically gone down about 5 billion and cut 20% from their forecast. And IDC still remains there at 30 billion. Pretty much everybody else who is making these forecasts is coming into the 20, 30, 20 to 30 billion connection range. And that's good because now we sort of have a decent expectation of where it's going. But that's just the one side. The other thing that's always been quite contentious is about these market opportunities or market values. And I used one example here. In 2014, IDC said that the market was going to be worth USD $7.1 trillion in 2020, which is a huge amount. Now, over the course of the last few years, they've revised that down. And their current forecast for 2020 is only $1 trillion. Now, what's scary about that is that's an 86% decrease in the market opportunity forecast, which means if you were doing and planning for your organization in 2014, you would have thought it's going to be worth 7.1. And now you've taken 86% of that market up out of there. What's also scary is they haven't changed their number of connections. So what you're seeing is that they realized there was actually less of an opportunity than they originally anticipated, which means the value of every connection is also 86% less. So I think a part of it's, it's evolutionary. We learn as we go along. And so these things happen, but this is what I'm trying to point out here is there is the risk with this type of hype. We build it up and you've seen a lot of examples recently where some very large companies have made some considerable investments. You know, we've heard what's going on with GE Predix, where if you go back three years ago, everyone thought Predix was going to solve all the problems of the world. And now the rumors are that's one of the components that GE is willing to sell when they sell their digital business and assets. So a lot of people invested early on these, and they're just not seeing the value come back to them. And then, you know, those opportunities turning into real world business. So what happened with the reality not meeting the expectations then for the IoT connections and market opportunity? I mean, it can't be just the analysts that are making the estimates and got it wrong, but it is also the companies operating and how they come about executing them as well, right? You're exactly right. It's not just the analysts. Everybody was overhyping it. I mean, there was another figure that came out. John Chambers, when he was still CEO of Cisco, said there was going to be 500 billion connections by 2025. You know, these, some of these forecasts come out from all over the industry. So I use the IDC example and some of the ones from Gartner and Cisco and Ericsson, but everybody's been making these. And what's happening now is we've gone past that initial hype phase. And this isn't anything new. We do it all the time. We've done it with mobility. We've done it with analytics and AI. We always tend to build up the hype. And then we realize that in reality, it's a lot more complex than we ever thought. And that's what we're struggling with right now. You know, when you saw those huge numbers before, say you run a professional services industry across Asia Pacific, you might say, look, if that's how big the market is, I should be able to do a few deals and make $100 million this year. And it isn't large initiatives. What the industry realizes is that these solutions aren't big ticket items up front. They all start as proof of concepts. And that makes it a challenge because what you're looking for are these huge op CapEx deals. They're going to bring in a lot of money to the organizations. In reality, they're all small in their OpEx. So how are you supposed to justify spending a lot of money on expensive headcount to sell, deliver, and manage these types of solutions when you only have a trickle of revenues coming in in the near term? So I think what's happening is 
You know, the, the industry itself is resetting its expectations. It's adapting its operational and go-to-market models to address this. I mean, it doesn't mean IoT is going away because it's not. It's just the natural evolution of the ICT ecosystem. But I think the industry has sort of been burned a little bit by this. But now what we're doing is coming back to having a more realistic view of the market opportunity. So do you think that the inflated expectations peak is going all the way down already or to the bottom or is still negotiable? <laughs> I would love to say that all the hype is gone. What I really dislike seeing is when I was doing the research for this keynote, a lot of those numbers for 2014 are still used in blogs and marketing collateral from various large vendors in 2018. And this, I think, really harms the industry. They're using outdated data to sell a vision that doesn't exist. And that basically just has lingering effects. So I don't think we're anywhere near just over the hype. We'll still always overhype components of it and, and the market value. I think we're still trying to understand what is classified as IoT. This is difficult to do apples to apples comparison. Any analyst firm will have a definition of what should be included in that market app, but then a different firm might have a different view. So it's not always an apples to apple comparison. What I always say is, it's going to be big. There's going to be opportunities. Find the segments that you see initiatives being delivered or where there's at least market interest and market demand and start going after those. I think this is going to be a story that we you will continue to research and work on and probably offer new insights to. But I think what I thought was interesting from the talk was the hot and surprising trends for IoT. And I think the one that really struck out to me was IoT in China. What has happened in China? And can you share some data on how IoT has exploded in China? Yeah, this was without a doubt the most surprising stats that I had found. And it, it came about because I saw a press release in, I think it was in July. And it came from China Mobile, and it said that they had just added 155 million IoT connections in the first half of 2018. Now, for years, I've been tracking these numbers, and Vodafone used to always be the leader, and they were tracking at about you know 65 million or so connections. And now suddenly, China Mobile was adding 155 in six months. So I started looking into it. And what I found was at the end of 2017, so the numbers that came out in January 2018, China's share of the global cellular IoT connections was 46%. So China Mobile itself was almost one third. They're at 32% of the global connections. And then you had Unicom at 9% and Telecom at 5%. So combined, they own 46% of the global market. Now in the first six months of 2018, I mentioned China Mobile added 155, China Telecom added another 30 on top of the 44 they already had, which means both of them increased their number of IoT connections by 40% in six months. Now, this is what you, I guess, define as exponential growth. I mean, it's ridiculously how quickly this has been growing for them in a six-month period. Now, we don't have that same numbers from China Unicom. This data actually came from both of their interim financial statements for H1 2018, but that is just staggering growth. And I'm fascinated by it. I've been digging a lot more into why it's happening and whether or not it's sustainable. So why did the IoT explode in China then? Is it just because this is just an initial setup growth or would there be a plateau similar to maybe smartphone growth? And what happens is that the services will start building on top of these connections within China itself. Well, I think before we even get into the detail and just take a step back and let's, let's look at what are the different components that would really make a market and industry take off. Basically, what you're going to need to have is supply and demand. So on the demand side, China, let's face it, we all know it. It's a very large country. It's approaching one. 0.4 billion people um, as far as its population. It's pushing, what, 600 million or so into that middle class. 
you have opportunities at the high end, the most technologically advanced end of the market, as well as all the way through. That creates demand for all segments of the economy, and that means their vendor supply, they've got a lot of opportunities to go after. So you've got tons of these local vendors that have been coming out and like creating new solutions and products for the market. But another part of this is also going to be about government policy and regulation. And no matter what people say about the Chinese government, they are outstanding about setting their five-year plans and establishing what they want to accomplish and aligning all the different industries to go towards a common goal. And they've done this around IoT, around analytics, around 5G. And what you're seeing is this is reaping benefits. The operators all knew to go down the MBIOT market because the government would push it, and that means you've got market demand, supply coming together, and policy all driving in the same way. And probably like the last part about it, like what I really find fascinating about the, the regulatory and the, the financial side of this up front, is that everyone, a lot of the major global MNCs complain that, well, in China, they won't buy our products. They'll only buy local. But that makes sense to me because what happens is the reason this has taken off is these vendors are coming up with hardware and software solutions that are developed locally, which means they're priced locally. It's very difficult to have solutions that are developed for the developed markets like Japan or Korea or Singapore, and then take those in and have them price in in countries like China or India or the rest of ASEAN outside of Singapore. So what they've done is they've built products and services to match the market's requirements. And that's really, it's just brought together this perfect storm where you've seen some fascinating growth. In the area of low power wide area networks then, is MBIOT now the default standard for China? This is the other staggering stat I got out of this. Like MBIOT is still in its very earliest days. And as of June 2018, according to Huawei, there were only 10 million MBIOT connections globally. So let's put that in perspective. We're talking about China Mobile having 384 million connections itself, yet there's only 10 million MBIOT connections globally, which means this is going to start growing. The other interesting stat on this is that the China Ministry of Industry and IT forecast that there will be 600 million MBIOT connections in China by 2020. Now, someone is probably saying they're listening or saying, thinking that, oh, this is just another hype figure. But if China then decommissions its 2G networks, which are going to be used for a lot of the solutions for asset tracking and logistics, and rolls those connections onto MBIOT, that's going to be able to lead that explosive growth there. So it's the applications and the services that's going to power the growth, not the other way around, basically. Well, I think it's going to be a combination. On MBIOT, we still don't have use cases. And this is the one thing that's always scared me about low-power WANs in general. Everyone always says, oh, it's great, there's a smart meter. But you only do a smart meter once every 10 or 15 years. Or oh, there's a connected rat trap. We don't need a few cases. We need thousands. And Huawei, who actually set up, I think it was nine different MBIOT labs, in partnership with operators around the world. And they had a couple of years of working on this. They've come up with a total of 40 use cases. That's four zero use cases, and that's it. So we're driving some growth, but we don't even know where it's going to go next. We need to get a wider ecosystem developing the products and solutions that are going to drive this. And the way I look at it is it's going to be the same thing as you had with uh, the iPhone and with Samsung and Android phones when they first came out. The devices are great. The reason that we as consumers can't live without them is because there's millions of apps on the app platform for each of those. Now, those apps aren't built by the largest ICT vendors. They're built, uh, built by students or small and medium-sized businesses or someone who's just goofing around on the side. We need that ecosystem of solutions to really start driving low-power WANs, whether it's MBIOT, LoRa, or Sigfox going forward. 
I think the IoT in China is still going to be a continuing story. So I want to talk about upcoming trends. I think what really is interesting to me at the moment is 5G. Most telcos are currently in the beginning phases of 5G deployment, trials, can you describe their progress in what they're doing right and wrong? Uh, this is interesting. So I've actually had a lot of briefings recently from some of the leading players in 5G, including SoftBank, KDDI, Docomo. So I have a good understanding of who's doing what. And those are the three Japanese operators that are the farthest ahead uh, when it comes to planning this. A lot of them still are struggling on what use cases it's going to be. Like we know 5G is going to be fast. We just don't know what to do with it. Um, the one thing that is very logical is things around HD video. But then again, there's only so many use cases that are going to require HD video. The other thing I'm seeing a lot of interest in on this is the idea of network slicing, which allows you to sort of create a private network for a company. And what I mean by that is, think about if you're a bank and you've got offices, if you live here in Japan, you might have offices in five different cities. Now, you could basically create your regular fixed network, like that, a wired network to create your WAN. What you can actually now do is get rid of all the wires and do this on 5G. And because you can do this network slicing, you can create it as your own private 5G network. Now, that's where we start seeing some of the opportunities. Now, on the rest of the things they're getting ready for, a lot of them are still trying to build out their ecosystems. For me, the best I've seen is from SoftBank. It takes a very pragmatic approach to 5G. And they said something that I was a bit shocked by because a lot of the vendors still talk about how 5G is going to be a great moneymaker and the thing that's going to solve all the industry's problems. SoftBank says that they do not anticipate the ARPUs to increase at all when it comes to 5G, but the data consumption is going to go through the roof. So that's why when they're investing and looking for partnerships, they're looking for hardware, software, and services. They're not, you know, they don't care about that connectivity revenue. That's going to be um, a struggle. They need to grow their revenues in the other components in that. So the hardware, software, and services. So are we going in M MVNO for 5G then? You'll start seeing, I think, a lot of them in certain markets. Japan, even if you go back five, seven years ago, I mean, at one point, Japan had 60 MVNOs on WiMAX, which is amazing because Japan is the one place you can still go and find your WiMAX phones and WiMAX offerings. But it always fascinated me that they built out MVNOs in that model. And now what you're going to see is, I mean, companies like Murabeni are already going into doing the MVNO on things like MVIOT, which will then move into 5G. That market is quite mature, and I think it's going to create a lot of opportunities for more MVNOs. We've also heard that Rakuten just announced it's going to be an MVNO in Japan, which will be interesting because they've got a really good relationship with their end customers. So are they going to be able to transition that into making it a really strong fourth operator in the country? In some sense, I think Reliance Joe in India is like an MVNO for 4G, right? If you think about it in that way. Am I right to say that? I wouldn't say Geo is an MVNO. I think it's just it's a massive, massive operator. You know, they built it out. And we know, both know some of the people who worked on that one. So the scale of it is huge. They've been able to drive data consumption across the country and expand internet connectivity to people who didn't have it until Geo launched. What's going to be interesting is to see how the Business, market, uh, business models expand and grow to actually start making money out of it because they've grown by just sort of giving away connectivity and for not a lot of money. Where are they going to be able to develop successful and sustainable business models that will deliver tangible business value? Just before we go off the MVNO, I guess a lot of my audience might be now confused what MVNO is. Can you just give like a brief introduction to what MVNO means for 5G? Okay, so it's, it's, 
mobile virtual network operator. So we've had these for years. I mean, you know, in the UK, you always had Tesco and you could buy your mobile phone through them. You know, in Cisco, we have my, or in Singapore, we have my Republic. What they basically do is they basically buy network connectivity through an existing operator. And then what they do is they do their own products and services on top of that. So the operator makes money by selling um, those services to the MBNO, but then the MBNO tends to have an affinity group that it can target and go after to try and drive additional value on it. So sometimes they do it because they think they can do it for low cost. So they'll go after maybe smaller ARPU customers, but try to do it more efficiently than a big telco could. Sometimes they're very enterprise focused. So you might have expertise in a specific industry or logistics or supply chain, and you'll try to offer a service that'll connect up just those customers. But what they all try to do is go after almost that micro segmentation. They want to focus on a group that they believe is being underserved by the bigger telcos, but it turns out being a win-win most of the time because you know, the operators are going to get some more money out of it after a group they're not doing a good job servicing anyway. Those people who aren't getting service now get something that meets their needs and requirements. The telcos often talk about network slicing because these days when I talk to telcos about drone applications, they will always talk about network slicing. What does it mean to be doing network slicing and what does it really do? Okay, so I'll, I'll start off by saying I am not the technology expert, so I'll give you the layman's guide to it because that's all I'm qualified to do. And when I first heard about it, I, was, I couldn't figure out what they meant by slicing. I kept thinking of pie and how do you slice pie? But then what I realized is the idea is you have an existing network. Let's just say we have a network covering Singapore. It's open up to everybody. So for the government of Singapore, they wouldn't be comfortable putting some of their sensitive data on a public network like that. What 5G and network slicing will allow you to do is create private networks. So a private 5G network that just the government could use. And that would be the same thing as having you know, an encrypted WAN, you know, something that allows them to control access to their own data, and it doesn't go out to the public where they would be exposed to security risks or regulatory issues. I can also add here that in the event for drone applications, typically what we really want is probably a dedicated network for us so that to make sure that communication cybersecurity for the drones to deploy its services and operations does not go haywire. I think this is where having this network sizing become very interesting, and I think it also has implications to autonomous vehicles as well. So will the telcos end up deploying two different networks for 5G, one for the consumer and one for the enterprise? Well, I'm sure they can slice it differently and probably have a lot more than that because of they'll, they'll offer different ones to different banks, different organizations. So, But do you mean like two different physical networks? I don't believe so. But then again, like I said, I'm not the technical expert on that side. The question for me is actually more in terms of thinking about the business from how the telco approaches the consumers and enterprises. On the enterprise side, I'll admit, I mean, I've to quite a few people in this space. The one thing they get excited by is network slicing because they realize this allows mobile operators to compete against the fixed mapper operator. They've finally identified a use case that has you know, an attractive uh, revenue stream going forward on 5G, and it's one where there's market demand. Think about if you're fitting out a new building and you, know, you have to put all the cabling and wiring in. Now, if you can just do network slicing and run everything on 5G, number one, your employees aren't tethered to an Ethernet connection or their desk. They can work anywhere and they can work anywhere around the cities as well. So it becomes you know, quite an attractive offering. And the enterprise customers I've talked to, this is the only thing that really gets them excited about 5G. That's because that's something they can see that will deliver value back to their business right now. One interesting part of your talk was about eSIMs and virtual SIMs. Seriously, I totally have not thought about SIM card technologies, but I thought after listening to your talk, I was like, oh, shucks, I didn't know how much it has evolved. So 
I'm going to start asking you this. Can you elaborate how the SIMS technology on smartphones have changed and how will they shift the market and what are the implications to smartphone growth? Sure. So once again, I'll start. I'm not a technical expert, so you'll get the layman's view of it. There's two types of solutions coming out right now that are actually quite fascinating because they allow for evolutionary and revolutionary business models. So the first one's about embedded SIMs. And an embedded SIM means you can stick a SIM in a laptop or a device and then ship it out. And it isn't affixed to a specific operator. So the idea would be, like, let's see, the example of the perfect one is Windows. Microsoft with Windows 10 did an eSIM initiative around the Windows 10 laptops. So there's about eight or 10 of these laptops now that have been shipped out by the Surface Pros have it now. I think some of the Acer devices have it. There's an eSIM in there. It basically allows you to connect to a local network, local number, or a local mobile operator, and sign up for a service then. And I know that probably didn't come out that great, so let me explain it like this. If you get a laptop right now and you want to connect it, you can go to, in Singapore, you can go to Starhub or Singtel and get that connectivity. You'd have to go to the shop pay for it there, you're paying their standard rates. With an eSIM, you can go anywhere in the world and then software-based, you can just go online and sign up for it and it'll assign that SIM to that network. So you can go out and buy that connectivity wherever you are. What's nice about that is, is as more operators launch this, I can go into countries where I'd normally be roaming and then connect directly onto a local network and pay local data prices. So that's the eSIM side. The virtual SIM side, I mean, eSIM is a piece of hardware. A virtual SIM is where we do it all software-based. And that means you can stick a SIM into any device, the software on any device, and it'll operate in that same way. It'll replicate what a physical SIM would do and allow you to connect to these different networks. Does it mean that things like data roaming is going to start getting disrupted because of having eSIMs? Because now that I can just pay directly to the local telco for the local rate. Yeah, you're already starting to see that. I mean, if you go back the last few years, there's been quite a few companies coming up with these things around uh, mobile hotspots. And what they would normally do is create a SIM bank. So they might have 1,000 or 5,000 SIMs from around the world in the bank. And they would just be trailing that data traffic through their own network and then figuring out which SIM they should be putting it on. But now Skyroam has come out with it with a virtual SIM. And it's basically the software that sits on this mobile hotspot and connects to your local network wherever you are. Now that handles the side that you can actually do it. What Skyroam did that was very interesting is they've partnered with Tata Communications. So Tata supports the virtual SIMs, but Tata has relationships with 600 different mobile operators around the world, which means that they're buying in bulk from them. So they can give you very low prices, but it allows you to go and then basically travel as much as you want in all these countries without ever paying roaming rates. So it becomes quite an attractive offering. Coming to the last part of your presentation in about predictions on IoT, I guess, what are the verticals now IoT technologies be disrupting? I think you talk about real estate. You want to expand a little bit on that? All right, on the disruption side, I think there's a big market in wearables on this right now. But I, what I talked about earlier about that you need specific niches for wearables. I do like the idea about healthcare wearables and elderly care management, combining that with eSIMs. So I keep an eye out on that one. People like Omade have been developing these great watches. They already partner with Tata on some of their other devices. I'm sure that would go down the elderly care route. That will lead to slight revolution because it's a small company. Where I think people are really concerned right now and why the operators are freaking out a bit is the new iPhone that came out comes with an embedded SIM, so an eSIM built into it as a second SIM. Now, what that means is I can buy it in, let's say, Singapore through Singtel. I have an embedded SIM that it's a second SIM, which means I can go into other countries and then buy local data on it. Now, this scares the operators because, let's face it, roaming is a lucrative revenue stream. So they're going to have to somehow, they run the risk of actually losing that. Now, what's happened in the industry is Apple in the US 
actually filed suit against Verizon and I can't remember if it was AT&T or Sprint, but one of those two, basically saying there was collusion going on and that the operators were trying to block eSIMs. And this is the important thing to realize about eSIMs and virtual SIMs. The operators are really scared of it because it's going to cut back on their control of their revenues. So it's going to cut back on the revenue opportunities from roaming. It also means they won't own the customer relationship anymore. If it's really easy to churn and go on to somebody else's network, people are going to do that. So this has a really disruptive influence on the mobile operators. So I'm going to wait and watch and see how this one actually plans out. But I've talked to some of the operators about it. They're not overly optimistic on what it means for them. They're in much more of a defensive strategy around it. I guess my question now is we have talked about IoT in 2015, 2016, all the way now to 2018. If I were to ask you the same question again at 2020, which are the predictions on IoT that are likely to happen or maybe the numbers will continue shifting and changing? This is tough because a lot of people in the industry are evangelists. I'm more of an industry pragmatist. I think we're still going to continue to struggle to see value and drive IoT solutions. And it's not because of the technology. We have the technology to build and secure any solution we want right now. The problem is we don't, and that has a lot more to do with our organizational issues. The fact that we don't know how to collaborate across different business units or skill sets or the ICT vendor community, I think that holds us back a lot because we're not in a situation where we're waiting for the technology to catch up. The technology is way ahead. We're just trying to figure out how to harness it and leverage it to deliver tangible value through our solutions. The areas where I am more optimistic, I think there's some really cutting edge technologies coming out there. A lot of it is science-based, funny enough. There's the one company I like a lot out of uh, Norway right now called Disruptive Technologies. And they're developing sensors that are the size of a Scrabble tile that come with a 15-year battery life. I mean, they do things like theft detection. You can measure proximities. You can do Fedora, Windows open. I mean, like I said, the size is so small. The price is so low. It allows us to start connecting and sticking these types of sensors into almost anything. It doesn't mean you have to use them right away. But some of the examples are sticking them into office chairs before you ever ship out your office chairs. So when you go into a smart workplace environment, people can just automatically start connecting it. Another one they're doing in the UK right now is they're putting these in fire doors because it's cheaper to launch this type of a solution to measure whether a fire door is open or closed than to buy a specific software one afterwards. So I think you'll start seeing some of the stuff where we'll, things will get faster, better, smaller, and hopefully cheaper. What it really, to really see the disruption though, we need people who know how to look at a business process or a customer experience and backfill it with the technology. So until that segment really grows, I don't think we're going to see that many revolutionary things, except for drones, of course, which you'll be driving. <laughs> no, I think I'm still also figuring out what the business applications and the right problem to solve for my customers and actually put these technologies on the back of their mind. And Charles, many thanks for coming on the show. And to be fair, I think you have actually understand technology far better than you claim that you are not. So I would have to add that, that you are probably very good at it as well. But in closing, I want to ask two questions. Can you recommend a book, podcast, or anything else that have impact to your work and personal life recently? I've gotten into reading a lot about stoicism recently. And what I've actually done is signed up for some services that I basically get, you know, popping up on my phone every morning, you know, a, a typical stoic message. And it's just a way about trying to balance the complexity of working life and the uncertainties the ecosystem that we're operating in and just putting everything in perspective. Yeah, we're not doing as well as we could. But then again, life's not that bad after all. I think the book that probably would also come to mind for Stoicism is the one called The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, who's also written a lot of very interesting books like Conspiracy and Trust Me, I'm Lying. 
And but for me, I would just recommend because I'm not stoic. I'm an Epicurean, so I recommend Epicurus: The Art of Happiness. So, last question: How do my audience find you? They can find me at LinkedIn under Charles Reed Anderson. I think I am the only one still for that. You can find me on Twitter at CRA Singapore, and my website is CharlesReedAnderson.com. Just Google me at Bernard Leong, and you can find our podcast across iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Spotify. And of course, tweet to me and give us a five-star rating on iTunes or a star on Overcast or Pocket Cast. And most importantly, tweet to me on your feedback. So once again, Charles, I think probably it wouldn't be so so far away as 2020. I'm going to probably get you to come back soon to have another chat with me then. I'll always be happy to do that, Bernard. It's always a lot of fun. Great to have you. All right. Thanks again.